0: Hello everyone, welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach, and I'm your host for the ongoing international webcast and telecouncil series, Restorative Justice on the Rise. This series is in its second season and has featured conversations with over 70 pioneers in the field of restorative justice and beyond. We hope you'll find it to be a great platform for education, connection, advocacy, and inspired action. And we look forward to seeing you in the near future. For more information about the series, please go to dopeace.us, that's d-o-p-e-a-c-e.us. Click on Restorative Justice and you'll find a drop-down menu there of all the archives, of upcoming guests, of resources, as well as related conferences and events in the United States and worldwide. This archive features a wonderful conversation that we had with Fred Van Lee. He's a lawyer, a mediator, and a former prosecutor, as well as the director of the Center for Restorative Justice Practices in Des Moines, Iowa. This was a great conversation we had with him on June 6, 2013, and we hope you'll enjoy this archive and to see you in the future as a participant on Restorative Justice on the Rise.
1: Good evening everyone, and it's so great to be with you tonight, wherever you're, you're calling in from or Skyping in from worldwide, welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach, and I am your host for this ongoing, week, mostly weekly, uh, international webcast and telecounsel series, Restorative Justice on the Rise. We aim to provide a platform to connect, uh, educate, inspire and provide advocacy and actions in your local communities and in the field. Many of you are very active and have been for a long time. It's so interesting to see the constituency that gathers for these councils and the backgrounds that you have. And irregardless of whether you're brand new, so to speak, to this or have been in it for a long time, we hope that you'll find this a useful space that you can carry with you. And also, if you don't already know about the um, growing archives, we've been doing this series now for two years. We have over 70 archives of conversations with pioneers in restorative justice. Everybody that has been with us is doing such significant work. We also every now and then feature significant conversations that go what might be considered beyond the restorative justice focus. For example, next week we'll be talking with Sebastian Younger about his documentary on the life of Tim Hetherington, who was a humanitarian and photographer and image maker who tragically was killed in Misrata, Libya in 2011 during the, the rise of the Arab Spring. So. Um, We're in the process here shortly of of migrating our website and upgrading it so that these archives can be even more easy to access for all of you. Remember, you can download them onto your hard drive by right-clicking it if you're on a PC or uh, Control-click on a Mac. And there's archives that feature conversations for everyone from uh, Michelle Alexander who wrote the very important book, The New Jim Crow*. We had a great conversation with her. uh, We've talked with Arun Gandhi, Gandhi's grandson. We recently spoke with Howard Zare. We've spoken with Kay Pranis, with just so many people doing such equally important work in the field. So please be aware of the fact that there is a robust and growing set of archives, audio archives, that you can tap into at any time at dopeace.us. Now that's going to be live for another month, and then we're hoping to be migrated by by summertime. One other announcement before we get into uh, this conversation tonight with our really wonderful special guest speaker, who I'll be introducing in just a moment. Uh, The uh, Peace Alliance will be partnering um, as will of course, this series. The Peace Alliance sponsors this series, and we also welcome your donations and support. If you if you like what you're receiving from this series, we certainly can can use your help in keeping it free. So feel free to donate at that same DoPeace.us U.S. page. Click on Restorative Justice, and you'll find a drop-down menu for the archives and for upcoming guests, as well as um, donation buttons. So. Uh, The announcement, though, for this summer, we're going to keep going. Last summer we we took a short break, but this summer we're going to be partnering with the SHIFT Network and Summer of Peace in order to provide a 12-week track between July 4th and September 21st, which which is International Day of Peace, focused solely on restorative justice. So please stay tuned for more information about that schedule. It will all be posted very shortly at dopeace.us as well as um, from, you know, the channels at the SHIFT Network, if some of you are familiar with them as well. So without further ado, um, just a note quickly about tonight's conversation with our special guest. If you have a question and you'd like to ask it live or make a comment, please press 1 on your telephone keypad. We'll try and get, get to you as soon as we can. I welcome uh, anybody's questions throughout tonight's conversation. We're going to go into some great topics as we hopefully always do <laughs> with our time. So remember, you can also, if you're skyping in as a telephone, you can you can press one on your Skype keypad, um, just as if you were on a phone. One other thing too is that we are doing webcasts that are supposed to be live alongside this telecounsel. Tonight's webcast, for whatever reason, had a technical issue. So I apologize for, for any technical difficulties people were having in trying to access this on the web. We do offer that feature and will continue to as we move forward for all of the telecouncils. They will be coupled with an accessible webcast on the World Wide Web. So tonight's guest, uh, honored guest, I'm just delighted that he can be with us tonight, is Fred Van Luu. And of course, Fred has, as many of our guests do, a long resume and list of accomplishments. Fred is, is a former um, prosecuting attorney, and he is a lawyer. He's the founder of the Center for Restorative Practices, Uh, Excuse me Center for Restorative Justice Practices In Des Moines, Iowa He is um, doing some incredible work In the Des Moines community And in order to just kind of get into The dialogue with him tonight I'm not going to read off the the longer resume um, And bio But rather have him kind of flesh out for us What brought him to the field And of course the, you know, the unique perspective that he has being um, a former prosecutor. So Fred, it's just a delight to have you with us tonight. And I I do want to say I encourage people to check out thejusticediary.com and and also would like to mention that Fred works closely with Howard Zare um, as co-mentor. So Fred, welcome tonight.
2: Great. Thanks, Molly. I've been excited about this since you called me a week or so ago. So uh, I'm excited about the conversation we're going to have.
1: Me too. And uh, we already have some hands up, but I'm going to just ask those people to please hang on for a moment because we like to start out usually by inviting our guests to talk a little bit about what brought them into the field. And especially with you, Fred, being that you've kind of been on the inside, so to speak, of – of the justice system as as a prosecutor so could you just give us a little bit of a story if you'd like on how um you know how it was to see it from the inside what brought you into the field in the first place and then what brought you towards restorative justice so to speak
2: sure yeah so i appreciate the uh the opportunity to talk about that i i never thought i would be a prosecutor i uh, uh, I, I did a lot of different things in between undergrad and law school, but then when I went to law school, I assumed I would be a criminal defense attorney, and my hero was Clarence Darrow, and, uh, and I thought that I would uh, represent you know, the poorest of the poor. And uh, uh, But I graduated, uh, did some work for, with the Iowa Attorney General's Office, and then got a call to uh, be a prosecutor with the local DA's office uh, in Des Moines. And uh, I thought that I should get some trial experience, which I did, uh, uh, prosecuting felony cases and doing drug and white-collar crime prosecution. Uh, But during that two-year stint, um, this would have been like 1985, 86, I was organizing a bunch of government lawyers uh, to do pro bono work. Government lawyers typically... uh, uh, say, well, they don't really have to do pro bono work because they're public servants, and I didn't think that was the case. So we created this organization called GAP, Government Attorneys Pro Bono, to uh, get lawyer, government lawyers uh, doing some kind of significant volunteer work. And it was during the Iowa farm crisis, uh, and uh, so we, we were offered the opportunity to, to be mediators uh, on farm crisis uh, cases. And uh, we went to a two and a half day training. It was mostly around that, but uh, there was one, uh, one one hour training, and it didn't say anything about restorative justice. But it was a what I would call what I called a couple of years later a victim offender meeting. It was uh, a mother of uh, a mother with two young girls, and the home had been burglarized, and they had a film of this uh, woman sitting across the table from the young person who had burglarized her home, and and caused the kind of trauma that we all know uh, is sustained in the aftermath of that kind of intrusive act. And I was blown away by that. And I didn't even know what to do with it. (laughs) Uh, But I just sort of tucked it away. And um, I left the prosecutor's office, did legal aid work for a couple of years uh, doing um, uh, homeless litigation, I uh, went into private practice for a couple of years in primarily criminal defense work. And then I got a call in 1990 to go back as a managing prosecutor at the same office in charge of the screening of all the cases that came into the office. And uh, it was incredibly depressing, actually. Um, uh,
1: you
2: know, what do you do with this, this, this senseless uh, parade of cases? And, uh, but about six months, six months into that, that position in 1991. Actually, I got a letter from a good friend, uh, a local minister, uh, who I'd done work with on some homeless projects in the mid 80s, and he said, "Fred, you got to know, you got to find out about this thing called restorative justice." And uh, he mentioned this guy by the name of Howard Zier in this book, Changing Lenses. And then, uh, and then he said, um, he included the keynote address from like the 1990. 91 Ontario, Canada, in restorative justice conference, and uh, the speaker describes restorative justice and he says, and he made a prediction. You know, we will have a restorative justice system uh, in within a hundred years. Uh, that was compelling. <laughs> of course, that wasn't going to be around for a hundred years, but the idea that we would have that there was this thing called restorative justice and that it could be the system, the way that we do business, where incredibly compelling to me. So within a month, I, I, one of the things I did was I was the, the attorney supervisor for our mediation center, uh, and uh, I pulled together our mediators. We had about 20 active ones, and I said, we need to learn about this thing called restorative justice. And we tried to get a hold of Howard. Of course, he was too busy even back in 1991 to be able to come to Des Moines, but we got a hold of Mark Bright up in Minnesota, who was a colleague of Howard's back in the 70s when they got Tax in yeah. And Howard came down and trained our mediators to uh, being victim-offender facilitators. And we we just started doing them. You know, we started out small uh, with low-level offenses. Uh, this was in '91, uh, and then uh, and they were, always, they were they were they were volunteers. You know, I would call a defense attorney and "What do you think? You know, would your would your client be willing to do this?" And we called the victim and. We were just flying by the seat of our pants initially, um, but as the years went by, um, uh, I, I began to at least have the belief that uh, that this was a really a right of the party. And the true parties, not the legal parties, the state, but the true parties. Uh, and at that time, the true parties in my mind uh, were the victim and the offender. Uh, it took me a little while to get to the place where the community also. A party, but um, uh, I began to see that you know if, if this you know, if we if make this available to 3, 40 people a year, can't we make it available to a thousand people a year and and so that's what uh, that was the endeavor was to create a process, create a, a vessel uh, within which to be able to have the capacity to allow anybody any victim of a crime uh, who wanted to meet with an offender to meet with an offender. And uh, and I think that was somewhat revolutionary that a prosecutor's office would be doing that. At least that's what people told me. They actually didn't use the word revolutionary. They used the word crazy, you know. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what we did. And uh, it took a while. It took four, three or four years before judges acknowledged that, uh, yeah, this, this really makes sense, you know. and uh, But by the mid nineties, ninety 95, 96, uh, it, it was routinely ordered. It was in it was in every criminal court order, something to the effect that there was language that if the victim wants the need to meet the offender, uh, then uh, then there will be a victim offender meeting to discuss uh, restitution, but also to discuss the impact of the crime on the part. So, and we build a capacity to, I think we ended up I uh, having eight or nine what we call victim um, victim coordinators, I think is the term, uh, who we trained in restorative justice principles. So that, um, uh, and we created a restorative justice center within the prosecutor's office and uh, uh, trained people uh, uh, with college degrees to be sensitive to both victim and offender needs and to conduct what I termed uh, restorative justice interviews, you know, in preparation.
1: Mm-hmm, hmm uh,
2: which is which is standard there now, uh, and um, and not only did we did we uh, develop the capacity to in any given year have a thousand to 1,500 1, victim offender meetings, but for me personally, uh, I sat in on hundreds over the almost 20 year period, and of course they're transformative even for a Observer. And, and then I was also, I, I was trained as a mediator in 91 or 92, and I, so I also facilitated it in the Thunder uh, meeting over the years as well. But, uh, but what we learned was, and I think this is what one of the transformative aspects for me and other people who were close with was, among other things, what, what victims want, you know. Uh, and this sort of ties in, I think, to the later discussion perhaps on research sort of as social movement. And that is that, you know, victims, once they would sit down and if it was well facilitated, uh, uh, that almost always, you would know, get to the point where they didn't want as a consequence what they thought that they wanted going in, you know. You know, they thought they wanted prison or they thought that they wanted some kind of a harsh penalty. And almost inevitably, that, that was not the result. That was not what the victim thought was uh, a was, uh, reasonable and responsive outcome to what had happened, to them. and uh, and so out of that we developed a lot of what I call sort of ancillary or, tra- or, 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 or you know, ancillary programs, you know, uh, that were that, that sort of under the umbrella of restorative justice because mm-hmm. because people were saying you know we want we want these people to to get educated we want them to get their GED we want them to get training you know a variety of things so. Uh, you developed a, a number of restorative justice programs as a result of, of witnessing the, the conversations between victims and offenders.
1: Great. I just wanted to to interject here. Um, I want to come back around in a moment to some of the specific programs that <clears throat> you've you know really been uh, an integral part of creating in that area, you know, um, branches or perhaps related areas um, besides the center. But I, I do want to take a moment to open up the lines here for Mitch. Um, Mitch, you, you may have a question or a comment. Welcome. You're live.
3: Hi. Thank you so much. I um, I appreciate being so much a part of this. Um, And Molly, I want to thank you for the information you gave on the rowing archives and whatnot and the newpeace.com. I'm definitely looking forward to that. I'm also part of the Summer of Peace program. I'm um, a peace ambassador under the guidance of James O'Day right now. And I just want to say thank you very much for bringing this venue about. And I want to... uh, um, give special thanks to Fred van Loo. and I have a little bit of a question for you uh, um, i uh, I have a comment for you at first, and that 's maybe just a small amount of experience because i don 't want to take up a lot of time, and that is that I had to learn. Uh, and I have no judicial system background in my corporate history or or any other type of work history in my background. I had to learn, and it was through watching court TV, which is rather amusing because I don't have cable TV anymore, um, and I don't get that that programming. I actually had to sit through and watch a very traumatic case um, involving a young girl in California who's who was just used and abused and raped and pillaged and, and, and whatnot. And then her body was thrown out in a garbage bag or something like that in California and watched it from the perspective of not being a prosecutor, which I was very much lent towards being, even though I don't have that background, and just watching it in complete neutrality. And it was, a, it was the most difficult thing I ever had to do in my life, but my God, when I got through it, I felt so much relief and so much peace in that. So, that's just, I wanted to tell you, I, I appreciate how far you've come. And I'd love to follow you and how you became a, from a prosecution perspective to restorative justice just absolutely amazes me. The question I have for you is my community. My, I live in the Seattle area, the Puget Sound region in the Pacific Northwest of the United States of America. Um, my community is Edmonds, Washington which is about 15 miles north. It's one of the birds of Seattle, it's a quiet little community. I have an interest in taking into the prison system. The the punitive, the penal system that we have here rather than this restorative system that we have here. Something that touches, moves, and inspires people towards more peace. My practice is A Course in Miracles. That's my own teaching. I know of a woman that's already doing this in this locality. I am scared, though. I'm scared about being... probably because of not having the knowledge. I'm afraid of going into this system. I'm afraid of being around a bunch of cons, eight or ten or whatever they put you in with. I don't know if there's going to be a guard in there. I wonder if you have anything that you would speak to me about along those lines.
2: Well, uh, I'm certainly not... When you say, are you talking about within a facility or within the criminal justice system, the local criminal justice system? I wasn't. Uh, no, where is I'm talking, about, I, I'm talking about going into a, pr- a prison
3: facility, namely um, Mon- the community of Monroe, which I think is about 15 to 30 miles north of me, sir.
2: Yeah, yeah. I would say you know I'm not the best person to talk to about that because almost all of my work in restorative justice has been, been within the the business that's done in courthouses. You know. And uh, I've certainly, I've facilitated victim-offender meetings with people brought back from prison. I mean, we would have uh, cases where um, severe sexual assault cases and where the victim two, three, four years later would call and say, you know, I need to meet the offender, the perpetrator, you know. But I've not gone into facilities like, and there, there, there are many experts around the country. Molly could probably i direct you in their direction later on. But that's that's not an area of expertise uh, that I have Mm. as a prosecutor.
1: Thank you, Mitch. Um, I would recommend looking into Prison Fellowship International, um, restorativejusticeonline.org. And I also would refer anyone who's interested. There's a film coming up called Unlikely Friends, and it shows um, really amazing snippets of processes of people on multiple levels uh, in, in very violent, uh, you know, re- uh, post-conflict situations where um, victims and offenders are um, meeting in prison together, even surrogate processes that are very powerful and very safe um, for everybody involved. In fact, it might even be said transformative so i'm I'm happy to follow up with you with uh, on that o- offline if if you would like some more references um, so that's a you know that's a great question and we may come back around too to i'm sure we will to the aspect of co- the community and how we can respond as a community um to counterbalance uh the formerly overridingly punitive system well and you know that that is still um, in our midst. So Fred... Yeah, I appreciate that. that. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I,
2: that's, that's my interest. That's where I think not exclusive, but considerable emphasis has to be, because only if we transform how we do justice on the local level uh, can we, in fact, have impact on the mass incarceration uh, uh, mm. dilemma that we find ourselves in. You know, we, we have to address justice on the local level, because that's that's where people get sent to prison from. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we certainly have all kinds of legislative bills as well: three strikes and you're out, mandatory minimum sentences, and that kind of thing. But uh, uh, you know, just like politics, justice is local. And so, uh, and, uh, in my opinion, the transformation has to take place within the hearts of people in the community, including the judges and the prosecutors and the people that are the professionals. Mm,
1: we, we've had some great conversations too with many. People on this series, where you know the discussion has led also to um, restorative justice being a daily um, practice a, a in our practice. own lives. So
2: absolutely, yeah,
1: um, definitely that's that too, a, yeah. a really yeah. meaty conversation <laughs> as well. Yeah,
2: well, you can't practice it professionally without it
1: <laughs> right.
2: doing, doing something to you. Yeah,
1: well, I always i'd good. like to
2: i like to think of myself that. Restorative justice saved me, you know, as a prosecutor. I mean, I could not continue to do the work uh,
1: right, that right. way. Well, let's loop back around for a moment. I want to hear more, yes. and I bet a lot of people would like to hear more about the specifics of the related programs that you've helped to create in Des Moines, including um, the grassroots organization called AMOS. Also, um, you know, you, you have uh, become the justice coordinator and you started a court watch program, you've also started a a school mediation program, and then you're working with the uh, ACLU as well as the NAACP. So let's talk about some of the ground level stuff that you're involved in a bit. Um, Yeah, let me give you
2: just a couple of minutes to to lead into why that's happening, okay?
1: Great.
2: My last five years as a prosecutor, I I, I, I wanted to apply what I had learned about restorative justice and working in the adult criminal system, which is actually sort of backwards from where most people are. Most people work with juveniles, but not exclusively. I mean, they're, they're certainly in prisons and working in reentry programs and that kind of thing. But a lot of the uh, community-based programs are uh, primarily focused on the juvenile area. Uh, but for 15 years, I was in the adult system as a prosecutor. But I wanted to see, uh, prior to leaving life as a prosecutor, you know, how would you apply restorative justice principles to uh, the juvenile system? And, uh, and I, had, I had over the years, and I don't know where I even picked this term up, but I liked it so well, primarily because I was in the system, a definition of restorative justice uh, that was restorative justice means just processing. And, uh, and that, was, that was sort of a, that was a motivator for me, to because I was in a position to influence the processing of justice Uh, how how does restorative justice influence that processing of justice? So, uh, and the interesting thing, and I don't know if we have any other prosecutors or people that work in the juvenile system, is that the interesting thing about the juvenile justice system is the incredible amount of power, uh, almost too much power given to the prosecutor. Uh, The prosecutor is really the gatekeeper of the juvenile justice system because unlike the adult criminal system, where someone is arrested and the clock starts ticking and they're in court the next morning, blah, blah, blah. In almost all juvenile justice systems in our country, uh, there is a referral by police to some entity uh, that's usually an arm of the court called Juvenile Court Services or something like that. And and there are uh, assessments done at that level. And, and then a request is made of the prosecutor to file formal charges. And so the prosecutor is really the the uh, uh the gatekeeper and can decide to what extent I want to let cases come into the formal system and so it's really there that that power of the prosecutor is not in the court thats, that's uh, not understood by a lot of people but it's not in the court it's at the it's at the gate you know and so we approached the state public defender and said could you uh, could you appoint?" Lawyers to young people before they're charged. Uh, and people may think, "Oh, doesn't that happen all the time?" Well, no, it doesn't. People get a lawyer when they're charged with offense formally. And I said, "If if if you could appoint lawyers to young people before they're charged, we could have a restorative meeting before I make a, a charging decision." And that's what we started doing. We would send a letter to the young person, to their parents, to the public defender's office, and Every week we would have these restorative meetings. We'd sit around the table and say, "What is in the best interest of this child? What, is, what are the needs that this child has?" And once those are identified collectively, uh, what do we have to do to get those needs met? You know, so it's a different conversation than how do we punish this that person? You know, it's not how do we punish them. It's it's how what are the needs and how do we get them how do we get them met? And uh, many many times many, many times, uh, the, the questions, the ultimate question was, oh, these are these the needs? And we can get them met without formal filing. And that's a whole other discussion, what happens if kids can file on the formal. So anyway, to make a long story short, uh, just, by, uh, just by adopting that one juvenile practice in juvenile court, and we adopted others as well, but that one uh, resulted in the reduction of court filings by 50%. So it had, a, it had a huge impact on the entire justice system, the entire juvenile justice system, uh, to reduce court violence by 50%. Uh, and we took the same approach into the child welfare area, you know, the department in the service area, and, and we asked similar kinds of questions. You know, what are the processes that should be in place where families uh, were treated? In, in, a, in a similar respectful way. And, uh, and we reduced court filings as well uh, on the, what we call the child welfare side. So, uh, so anyway, so we, we incorporated these processes. And uh, it also included victim offender meetings, and juveniles. Uh, uh, and so that um, was through 2010, I retired. Uh, and uh, and this, this is the sort of the, this is the challenge. Or it's a challenge, uh, I guess, I say, is how do you develop it? It raises the question, the significant question is how do you develop a system that, that, that outlives, not outlives, but that is sustainable without particular individuals? Uh, when I left, the court filings went up in a single year by 145%. Uh, so you went from a period of time of five years with a 50% reduction to a one-year spike of 145%, and it's been growing the last couple of years since then. In fact, a report was issued uh, two weeks ago by the state of Iowa that the detention of, of African-American juveniles, for simple misdemeanor, the least serious offenses, in a two-year two period have gone up 700%. So. Uh, these raises these raise significant questions. I think for those of us in the restorative justice field that want to look,
0: believe we need
2: to look systemically
1: uh, at at how justice is done in our country. So, anyway, and I'd, so that, I'd that like to ask goes, you a quick question about yeah. um, a point that you raised just a moment ago. That's really key,
0: yeah. and
1: and it. It relates to on the tales of the Restorative Justice Symposium here in Colorado and in talking with a lot of different folks from all across the nation. One of the things that that we're looking at right now, it seems, is a way to um, appropriately provide data around cost savings. Um, And so you you just said that there was a 50% reduction um, and I'm wondering if you have any, any feedback or insights into how, how can we give back to, um, you know, given that it, it seems that to get, get the funding that's needed for these incredible programs, um, we need some data and stats, and they're growing right now. Significantly, and I'm sure a lot of of you here gathered tonight are a part of of building statistics, and you know, we human beings seem to ne- seem to need statistics,
2: right? Other so oh, points, yeah, right, yeah.
1: Yeah, do you and you know it from the inside. So, how would right. we how would we provide a um, given that we divert um, youth from incarceration, for example, or even from the we, court
2: system itself, even or from even the court from,
1: system itself, exactly. Right. So. W- how would we go about providing viable statistics that are at least a guesstimate of the cost savings? Because we know it's very expensive to right. put somebody, even one individual, through the the process, and and much less to incarcerate them.
2: Well, uh, a, a couple of responses to that in Iowa, and i should sure most cases have this, but we have we have a Department of Human Rights. Within our Department of Human Rights, there is what's called the Division of uh, uh, Juvenile and Adult. The, the division of juvenile and adult uh, criminal justice planning agency, and uh, they're 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 the recipient of juvenile data from every county in the state, uh, and they have these incredible analysts, <laughs> and uh, and they they produce annual and biannual reports that uh, that should influence policymakers. Okay, uh, and so that kind of data is critical for policymakers to look at. You know, you know, you know, what what are the trends in terms of arrest? What are the trends in terms of filing? What are the trends in terms of detention or incarceration? Uh, you know, what what is the racial or what is the racial breakdown? Uh, you know, in, in every single category. You know, it's, it's critical to have that kind of data. And then on a local level, we know, for example, to have a child detained at a juvenile detention facility, our primary one, it costs four hundred forty dollars a day. So it's pretty easy to, uh, to demonstrate over a, a one-year period of time, for example, what it costs to, to detain so many kids annually versus so many kids annually. So, for example, our detention facility holds a max of 32 kids, and if you exceed 32, they have to go to other facilities out of county. Uh, when I took over that position, uh, the county was sending kids to other counties. Uh, When I left, the average daily census was 12. So we reduced the the daily attendance, so to speak, from 32 plus to 12. Uh, Now it's being exceeded again, and kids are being sent to three other facilities. So uh, it's pretty easy to demonstrate the cost of of certain arrest practices, detention practices, uh, court filing practices. Uh, You know, it's, it's, it's not a hard thing to do and I think it's easier on the juvenile level than it is on the adult level there are mm-hmm. really there are really fewer pathways you know uh, for juveniles than, than, than adults. have you
1: Have so you seen I, any reports um locally or nationally that that would be available for people if they're interested in like the 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 cost savings analysis of of programs like the ones I've that certainly seen good
2: articles. I mean, I think in the juvenile area, one of the classics out there, I'd uh, have to go back and look at it. Uh, I have it on my desktop. But, uh, uh, there's a classic report out there that has incredible information for those interested in juveniles and, and incarceration or detention. It's just called The Dangers of Detention. and you okay, can The Google Dangers, dangers of, of
1: Detention. The, the uh-huh. Dangers
2: of Detention. And
1: it's, okay. it's
2: the preeminent work uh, short of some 400-page academic piece. Uh, on, uh, on what we do when we detain kids and uh, psychologically, Excellent. emotionally, you know. So that, that, that that's a reference to people in this area.
0: I Great, know, make wonderful.
2: So, so I want to bring it back around to your, your question about you know, the, uh, you know being on the other side, you know, being outside the system, you know, and uh, but having been informed by being in the system, and then what what do you do in the community, you know? Uh, how does the community respond? Uh, and I think that maybe a threshold question is, <laughs> I think it's a rhetorical question, but I think a threshold question is, does the community have a right to inquire and make demands of its justice system? So no. uh, let's assume we, we are unanimously in support of that. <laughs> so then how do you go about doing it? How do you make demands on the justice system? No. How do you scrutinize policies you know, we scrutinize policies on the national level all the time and on the state level too, but how do you scrutinize your local justice system? You know, where do you start? So, uh, so uh, I, I work for an organization called, as a volunteer, uh, called Amos. Uh, it's, it's,
0: it's under the umbrella
2: of many people may know of Saul Orinsky, the founder of the Industrial Areas Foundation out of Chicago, uh, Barack Obama, and he was Community organizers in Chicago trained in the Industrial Areas Foundation method of community organizing. So, Central Iowa has one of the entities called AMO, the Mid Iowa Operating Strategy. And and it has taken on this issue of juvenile justice. And there's a core research team. So, we gather research on what works and what doesn't, what are the best practices, what does the research show us in terms of juvenile brain development? what does research show us in terms of the dangers of detention, uh, the dangers of having a kid go deeper into the system? You know, uh, if the if community or a core group is interested in changing the system, first they have to educate themselves. And then they have to decide, okay, where do we go? How do we make some impact? And uh, we decided uh, we had a huge, I consider it a huge community forum last December after I taught I taught a couple of uh, five-session classes, one's an African-American church and one's a Unitarian church. All these things we're talking about tonight. What does our our present attributed system look like? What are the constituent parts? How might restorative justice be an antidote or a response to that? Uh, And um, and then we held a large community forum. We asked people, uh, what do you want to do? And we had some suggestions, and they made others. But the top suggestions were, train us to become court watchers. Train us to go into courtrooms and really assess what justice looks like. In a juvenile courtroom. Uh A second thing that people uh, wanted to do, and by the way, we trained—we uh, trained 80 people to be court watchers, including university students. And then we, other people, uh, uh, wanted to be trained as school mediators, you know, to go into school to uh, to try to slow down the you know, school to prison pipeline flow. You know. uh, when I was a prosecutor, I had I placed prosecutors in five of our public high schools one day a week, part of one day a week, and and we we reduced uh, suspensions by almost 50 percent by having a mediator there uh, every single week instead of just you know call us if you need a mediator, and we put them there so it was an in-school resource And so we huge impact on, uh, reducing suspensions and arrests by school resource officers. And I think we're seeing, I routinely see articles from around the country about you know, uh, the use of restorative sort of justice practices in school. It's a huge thing. It has to be multiplied many times, I think. So, so anyway, so we've trained 80 court watchers. We've trained about 40 school mediators. We're in negotiations right now with the one public schools to place a minimum of 60 trained volunteer mediators in schools beginning in September. And then, most recently, uh, Uh, because we're hearing so much from the minority community about uh, racial bias practices of which they've become victims of, we we are right in the middle of creating a racial profiling program. Uh, It's called Stop Racial Profiling, and uh, we are collaborating with the local American Civil Liberties Union office as well as the local NAACP office. And uh, what we're doing is we have dedicated... Email, dedicated phone, Twitter, Facebook, and we're producing 10,000 business cards to disseminate throughout the community. If you've been the victim of racial profiling, contact us. And what we're doing, we're working with uh, area churches to be locations where uh, victims will go and they'll be interviewed. uh, They can be confidential or not, it's up to the individual and uh, They'll be uploaded, actually, on a really cool program that I wasn't aware of until recently called SoundCloud. And we will create this whole
0: um, base of audio
2: interviews, and, uh, and then we'll also we're creating a data uh, uh, we're creating a process through a uh, another platform called ChatSword, where where intake interviews are immediately uploaded into a database. So um, we're really really excited. Can about you state
1: that of- that uh- that last software program or whatever it is oh. for people. Oh, it's, it's called it's called Jotform. J O T F. Jotform. Okay.
2: No, yeah, it's no, like a back end editor.
1: No, jot, your... no jot, but no jot. J. J-O-T. Right. Jotform.
2: Right. Exactly. So it's what we use for court watching now. So uh-huh. know, when we have when a court watcher fills out the two page form, now we enter it into an online form. hit submit immediately goes into our court watch database. We can issue reports on. Racial bias tendencies in
1: the court system. And, and, what and you for, Fred, I'm, I'm I'm guessing that a lot of people might want to ask you further questions after tonight's sure. council. And I'm yeah. wondering if you might open up a bit uh, of information of the best way to get a hold of you besides the Justice That's the Justice Diary, all one word. Yeah. dot com. Yeah. That's that's your great blog. And yeah. um, there's also an email on there, isn't there?
2: Right. Uh, the, 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 probably the best email address is for the Restorative Justice Center, the Center for Georgia. Justice, and that's rjpractices at gmail.com. And, uh, and I can even get my cell phone. It's 515 314 And I'd love to talk to people about this because I'm passionate about this this absolute necessity that we create, as you, you alluded to it, Molly, at the beginning of the program, would necessarily create a weight out in the community, to counterbalance the dominant justice. It's not going to replace the justice system, but there, there, there will be no modification, in my opinion, of the way local justice is done unless there's power out in the community. So what does that power look like when it comes to justice issues? You know? And uh, it has to be people, right? People are right. power, you know, and so how is, how do people come together on justice issues? well you put them in courtrooms and you have them observe and uh, and rate people on their um, you know how are they treating people are judges respectful of defendants you know we we have a one to five rating system on judges and prosecutors and defense you know and and we we record you know what you we know, record uh, you know, racial uh Data. you know, so uh, we have a huge disproportionate minority contact problem here, and, uh, but we need to document that, you know, by being in courtrooms, by by document it when we do school mediation, by documenting it through racial uh, profiling, this racial profiling project. So, so it's uh, we believe that you uh, begin to add to this community weight as it relates to justice balancing you know, by creating programs that people can actually get involved in, uh, in justice, you know, in, in a justice endeavor, you know. Uh, uh, and uh, I sort of think the sky is the you know, yeah. limit. So a question uh, that we may not get to too much tonight is, where where is restorative justice in this? You know, where is the restorative justice movement, if we call restorative justice movement, where is it as a social movement? Where is it, what does it have to say about uh, uh, about unjust practices within its community, or, or about mass incarceration, and, uh, because I think most people that are drawn to the restorative justice movement are certainly uh, appalled by wherever they see injustice within this within these systems. So, so what does that call them to do beyond beyond what they might be doing already as a let's say a mediator, or a facilitator, or, or the the facilitator of circle processes, or keeper of the circle things. Beyond those practices that many of us, uh, you know, uh, utilize, you know, in our in our own individual practices, what are they called upon as the sort of justice practitioners to do in to these systemic problems?
1: Fred, I, I, I this is a great time for us to seg um, into the related area. I think that is it's important to bring it to the table. Um, I think you and I both agree, and I'm sure a lot of people with us tonight in the council would agree, if not everyone, that there's been um, some reluctance and maybe even uh, an underlying fear that that possibly has been a part of the restorative justice movement, um, at least the modern movement in particular to this country, although we know that it's been um, – you know practiced for ages as well as uh you know really demonstrated by our indigenous and those in peripheral um societies so to speak so um what if, what are some of the fears or reluctances that you've seen in um that restorative justice has uh has faced in confronting systemic issues what are those things and let's get I, into know, that for a bit and yeah just, that's just a great a question moment. I just want to um, also remind everybody in the council, You please feel free to get involved here in the conversation. We have another 10 minutes left with Fred tonight. So if you do have a question or a comment, um, press 1 on your keypad. I'll get to you as, as we can before we close tonight. So,
2: Well, Go I ahead, think Fred. people,
1: people are generally,
2: it's like driving down the street and seeing a police car in your rearview mirror, you know. Uh, you can be doing absolutely everything right. And you still have this uh, nauseous feeling, right? (laughs) At least I do. (laughs) And, uh, people are afraid. Uh, you know, I have very, very good friends who are wonderful attorneys, uh, and they are afraid to speak up. Uh, they're afraid of the consequences. They're afraid that they're not going to get the kind of deals that they've been getting, or that they're not going to get the appointments or the clients or, or who knows what. And, uh, Uh, And not just lawyers. I mean, other people were... were, There's this growing fear. I mean, just like there's growing fear about, you know, what what our federal government is doing in terms of the Patriot Act, you know. Uh, What can happen to us if we start calling the system out, you know?
1: Fred, it's it's interesting, too. I want to really um, bring light to... An article that you that, uh, that was published in the Des Moines uh, Register last year in April of 2012, um, called "Growing Past Hate," restorative justice helps heal pain from teens' vandalism. And actually, to me, at least, this this piece that you wrote speaks to some of this. You, it, it seems to me that you walked through with um, those involved in this crime. Um on both sides uh some of these issues didn 't you
2: yes yeah it uh it was it was in the early years um, but it, but the article addressed issues that I think come up uh, regularly uh This is a case where uh, one of our uh, Jewish synagogues in Des Moines was uh targeted uh and, and there was the the whole side the main side of the building uh, uh was painted with uh, anti-Semitic and Nazi graffiti, okay? And there was a huge community outrage over it, and rightly so. And the, the religious community came together, and uh, there were sort of vigils and forums talking about this. And that was all really good. Uh, but there was also this sort of this uh, underlying uh, feeling or uh, present, and it was almost like a vigilante uh, Feeling, and uh, you know we're going to get whoever it was, and and they're going to be locked up, and uh, you know they're not going to see the light of day, you know, and so it was just uh, dark light (laughs) response. And uh, uh, about three weeks after the incident, two young people were arrested, and uh, one was 17, one was 18. So one was a juvenile, one was an adult, a boy and girl, male female, and uh, they were charged with the highest level of the highest felony level of property damage. And, uh, actually, you would think it would fit under the hate crime statute, but it didn't uh, for some reason. So uh, I was responsible for deciding where the case goes in our office, and I decided to hold on to it. I thought, even though I only knew about it for sort of tests I thought this is the case. Okay. It's sort of a test case. You know. you know, we can use restorative justice sort of under the table with minor thefts and assaults. Even burglaries, which we've been doing for a couple of years, but what about this one? You know, where people are screaming for blood. And uh, so I called up the rabbi, uh, uh, Rabbi Stephen Sink, and I, I, mean, I obviously introduced myself and told him. Uh, or asked him. I said, "What? What do you know about restorative justice?" And he said, "Oh, I think I've heard of it." But I don't. So I, I proceeded to give him the kind of definition that I was equipped with at the time, and, uh, and I said, "What would you think about?" Uh, you know, Members of God sitting down with these two young people, and he said, um, "He said, you know, that's what we should do in our tradition, but you know, we just can't do it in this case." You know, it's basically saying, "You know, it's good for my neighbor, but not good for me." And uh, and I said, "Okay, I, I respect that." And I said, "But call me if you, uh, if, you know, if you have any questions, change your mind, whatever." So he called me back a week later, and he said, "You know, we've had three meetings about this, and uh, and we have to." How can we not sit down and, and have a conversation about this? And, um, and by the way, the response, I told you about the response from the faith community. There, there are many elderly people in the synagogue. Uh, two, two members of the synagogue were Holocaust survivors, and they went into hiding. They thought that the Nazis come back the morning, you know, And they were, actually. In the but they, they locked themselves in their basement. Um but anyway, so we did, we did the prep work, we talked to the defense attorneys, um, uh, my best facilitator that I knew uh, agreed to facilitate it with me, I facilitated. We met in the basement of a synagogue, uh, long table, and the synagogue had, had come together and they, had, they were very intentional about who was going to be prep. Uh, it wasn't a circle as we know circles now, but it was around a long table. And there were, the two, there were The two Holocaust survivors were there, the rabbi, uh, another synagogue member who had been uh, in the Israeli secret service, uh, and then a couple of other synagogue members, and then the two young people. And uh, um, the, the synagogue members spoke first. And, this, and the Holocaust survivors talked about what it was like to be you know, in the concentration camps, young people, you know, five to seven years old, you know, their parents being murdered, uh, relatives, siblings, whatever, what it was like to survive in the United States, somehow try to make a life in the action after that. And and as so often happened in any truly affected victim offender uh, process, the light bulb went on uh, with these young people. And uh, uh, and they started, it you know, became very teary. And then it got turned over to the young people. They wanted to know, where do you people come from? What, you know, why, how could you do this kind of thing? And it turns out that the young man, particularly, when he was, he was 18, then, when he was 16, he lived with a stepfather, he had a hearing and a speech defect, uh, he was taunted at school, his father physically, his stepfather physically abused him, uh, refused to get him help with his uh, speech and hearing problems. So he ran away from home, ended up in Alabama, and for six months um, was taken in by a neo-Nazi group that systematically taught him to hate Jews and other people that they targeted. So he came back to the Moines and uh, recruited this young woman to uh, uh, to carry out these acts. And this was the first one of their acts that had others planned. Uh, so there was much discussion both sides. about lives and the impact of it. And, and then, uh, then one of the members of the synagogue said, well, what, what do you want from us? And the young man said, uh, you know, we want to be forgiven. And the rabbi then spoke up again and said too much, but the rabbi spoke up and said, well, you know, in our tradition, it's just not that easy." He said, in our tradition, we have this thing called atonement. Uh, you haven't atoned. You haven't done anything. So then that was the segue. It was a wonderful segue to what does atonement look like? And uh, I mean, it, it, you couldn't get a more beautiful, restorative uh, dialogue you know, going on from there. And what they came up with was uh, uh, the synagogue. One of the synagogues uh, said, "You know, so and so is an audiologist. I'm sure that he will see you. We'll make the referral, and, and we'll see that you get help paying for, for hearing aid, if that's what you need, and assessment. And uh, and to the young man, you have to agree to have your tattoos. You both have to agree to uh, get your your GEDs and uh, counseling. And then the rabbi said, you know, you need to do something here for the temple. uh, So they agreed that they would each do 200 hours. uh, 100 hours under the supervision of the the custodian. Finishing work on uh, restoring the outside of the temple to its pre damaged state. And then uh, they each agreed to do 100 hours uh, in, in meetings with the rabbis uh, studying Jewish and Holocaust history. And uh, uh, it was just an incredible wow. thing that, yeah, that no judge, I don't think, on his own would ever even think of it, let alone the sentence that they had to do. Yeah. And so then there was an agreement to, uh, they asked me as a prosecutor, you know, will you ask the judge to delay further processing in this case for six months? If we can come back in six months and see, has, has there been atonement? Uh, so everybody agreed to that. Uh, we went to the judge, you know, we got the agreement to came back in six months, and uh, found out they had done everything, not everything, and more. And the rabbi was said, these are my friends. And they were the best, as good of students as I've had. Uh, and we've been transformed by by this process. Not just the process, the initial process that evening, but everything that's happened after that. And uh, the rabbi said, you know, I'm going to go back to court. I'm going to go down to the court and ask the judge to dismiss the case, which the rabbi didn't do that. The young couple got married. The synagogue sent presents to them. The custodian went to the wedding. The rabbi wasn't available, and uh, and for me, even though I'd been involved in restorative justice in ninety one, ninety two, ninety three, I think this was ninety four. That one case said to me, "If we can do restorative justice on this case with this kind of public scrutiny, when can't we do it?"
1: You know? mm-hmm.
2: uh, and uh, and it's just a matter of will. You know, we just have to have the will to do it. It's not a matter of, I don't believe it's a matter of resources at all. I think that's crap. Or some people say, well, we've got to have legislation. and well, that's crap. It's just a matter of the will. And uh, mm. uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, and so that was, uh, to me, that was a like, sort of a watershed case, period of time. Until, uh, well,
1: and for, you know. For those who are interested um, in accessing a couple of the things that have been brought to the light tonight in our conversation, first of all, of course, again, um, what Fred was just describing with this, this uh, incredible case, um, you can access that full article at the Des Moines Register by going to desmoinregister.com and or you could also Google it, of course. You could Google the title. Growing Past Hate, and you'll, you'll be able to access that, um, that full article, which is well worth the read. And also, uh, for the dangers of detention, that full download, the full report, the PDF that Fred mentioned earlier, you can find that at justicepolicy.org. That's the Justice Policy Institute in their research tab section. Um, You'll find The Dangers of Detention, The Impact of Incarcerating Youth in Detention and Other Secure Facilities. That's by Barry Holman and Jason Ziedenberg, published in November of 2006. Probably there's some of you who already are aware of that report, but it's always great to share these kinds of resources and publicize them um, for raising the bar of awareness and education as we mobilize in restorative justice and I'm afraid that uh, given the fact that our linear time is up, Fred, um, we we could go much further, I know, and I, I do want to make mention to everyone that you're working on a book. Um, could you just say a few words in closing tonight about the book that you're working on and anything else you'd like to mention for those um, on the council tonight?
2: Sure. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, I've always been intrigued by Howard Zare's uh, 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 the, the metaphor of the camera, you know, and the book Changing Lenses. And so I was on vacation last summer, and I thought, what would it be like to look at light in general through a justice lens? Uh, not so much a paradigm shift from retributive to reserve, but just a justice lens. So, uh, and then diary about it. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm in the process, and I'm on the road, 10 to 12 days a month. I've done a few of these, and I'll be doing them for the next, actually, year because I I have a deal with Howard, actually. Howard is my mentor at Eastern Mennonite University where I'm in a graduate program on conflict transformation, and I'm doing an independent study with Howard, and uh, I've agreed to be on the road 10 to 12 days a year. Easy for him to say. You know, he doesn't have to pay for the gas. But uh, I'm uh, uh, just talking to ordinary people, uh, wherever I would find them, you know, uh, what does justice look like for you? When did you become sensitive to justice and injustice? How right. have you bumped up against the justice system? How has it treated you? And I, I blog about it. I've, I've done it 70, 80 blog entries since I started, and I'll probably have a couple hundred more at the end of the year. Uh, but it's really just, you know, looking, looking at life through justice, talking to ordinary people uh, about their experiences and their thoughts and feelings about justice. Because I... I truly believe that what politicians tell us people want in terms of a response to crime, and delinquency, is really not what people want. You know, uh, it's uh, mm-hmm. you know, and Michelle Alexander did as good a job of anybody about teaching us, you know, how we got to where we are in terms of this whole tough on crime monster. Mm-hmm. You know? And and so I to uh, I want to document what ordinary people, not so much experts. I'll talk to some experts, I'm sure. Uh, but mostly it's the guy in the at the bus station or in the bar you know or on the street corner or you know wherever you know yeah. uh so that's it yeah's's it
1: wonderful my,
2: my brother well, no, oftentimes guy, it's yeah.
1: uh, it's those that we might call ordinary that are extraordinary i mean we all yeah, have, have something uh to offer this conversation. And, yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, yeah. And yeah.
1: Michelle Alexander is one of, of, of I, I just deeply respect her. I think many of us know of her book, The New Jim Crow. She's actually a part of the Restorative Justice on the Rise archives, um, including a transcript of that conversation, which is housed over at dopeace.us. You click over on the right hand menu um, to restorative justice, and there's a, a drop down. Um, directory of a whole bunch of different resources there for for those that might find those useful and again like I said earlier we will be migrating over to thepeacealliance.org and uh, hopefully having um, a much clearer archive directory and even a podcast here in the near future with this ongoing series so um, Fred it's been just wonderful thanks for taking a little extra time with us tonight it's an honor to have you with us, and I just wish you all the best in uh, you know the the travels that you're doing, okay. and in the the great work that you're doing, the profound work that you're doing. And uh, again, for those who'd like to reach him, please email him um, at the rjpractices at gmail dot com. That's Restorative Justice R J Practices at gmail.com and you can also of course reach him through thejusticediary.com so um, everyone thank you for your participation in this council and uh, hope to see you in the near future next week we're talking with Sebastian Younger and then the following week we'll be talking with Matthew Hartman who is the producer one of the producers of the Northwest Northwest Justice Forum And just to make note that Fred will be one of the guest speakers there and participating in what's called a Samoan Circle with Howard Zare and others. So um, that's coming up at the end of this month in the Portland, Oregon area, June 25th through 27th, that is, in Oregon City, Oregon. So um, Fred, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Molly. For your dedication to this field. And thank you to all of you. Have a great night.
2: Great. I'll see you in Portland, Oregon.
1: Wonderful. Good night, everyone. Good night.
2: Bye.